Let's pray. Gracious God, we come into your presence in and through your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is eternally begotten, who is the one from whom the Holy Spirit has proceeded forth, even from the Father and from the Son. And we thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed, uh, the Son of the Father, we have been gathered into the fellowship of our triune God and that we can call upon your name and know that you are our God and that we are your people uh, and that you've established a covenant of grace, even a new covenant in Christ in which we have been promised that we shall know the Lord. We pray that by your spirit, you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know the Lord, that we would know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in accordance with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin our final topic in the Federal Vision Lecture Series, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity as it's been taught and expounded in particular by Federal Visionist Ralph Smith. And we're going to look at the ways in which Ralph Smith's teachings have been imbibed and embraced and affirmed by the Federal Vision. Uh, This is going to be a multi-part lesson, so keep that in mind. Hopefully we can make some progress here today. Uh, We're going to begin by considering biblical Trinitarianism, just refreshing our memory concerning the historic, reformed, creedal, confessional, classical view of the Trinity. The basic definition of the Trinity uh, is this, that there is one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've all heard that. that. That's a basic definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. We understand that there's more to be said, but if we're teaching our children, we're going to explain there's one God, there's three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, We might want to add there something of the fact that the Father has eternally begotten the Son and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and Son, but I'm just using this basic definition for now. Uh, There's an explanatory definition that I've provided here to help us wrestle with and understand the classical Reformed doctrine of the Trinity. Some of you know that in our pre-seminary courses this past year and even this summer, we've been studying theology proper, and um, we've spent quite a number of months on the doctrine of the Trinity and so I would, I would explain our basic definition with this explanatory definition based upon the uh, tried and true articulations of the Trinity that we see throughout the, the historic Reformed faith. God is one numerically singular divine essence. So when we say that there's one God, we mean that God is one numerically singular divine essence. God has one nature, one essence. We could say it's his substance, his nature, his essence. All those terms are synonymous for our purposes. And there is one divine essence. It is numerically singular. Uh, If you have two human beings, uh, they are both human. They have the same nature in a sense. Uh, 
but they're two different beings, two different individuals. There are multiple uh, individuals, multiple beings that have the human nature, multiple essences, if you, if you could say it that way. But God is one numerically singular divine essence. So we mean that there's one God, period, one divine nature, not three equal divine natures, three equal divine essences that are the same, uh, but one numerically singular divine essence, one God, subsisting in three persons. Uh, You could use the word existing or subsisting. Uh, This divine essence exists in such a way that there are three persons within the divine essence, subsisting in three persons, and these are distinct persons. So notice in our definition, subsisting in three persons, distinguished intrinsically, not merely conceptually. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons. When we define the term person as Reformed confessional Christians, Trinitarians, we have no problem saying that the persons are modes of subsistence within the divine nature, that this is the manner in which the divine essence exists. It exists in three persons. God exists in three persons. This is the mode or manner of the divine essence, three persons. We have no problem calling the persons modes, uh, but the reason that we would be able to say that without being modalists is that we believe that these three personal modes of subsistence, these three persons are distinguished intrinsically. So the, the modalist, the oneness Pentecostal, the Sabellian heretic would say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like a man who is a father, a husband, an uncle, a fire chief. You know, these are just various conceptual distinctions, but it's the same person. We would say, no, these are three distinct personal modes within the Godhead. They're intrinsically distinct. Uh, Not merely at a conceptual level, it's not as though Father, Son, and Spirit are the three ways by which God reveals Himself to us, but there's nothing corresponding to this in the divine being, not at all. God really and truly, intrinsically, is three distinct persons. Each person is the full divine essence, but the persons are distinct. That's, That's how we avoid modalism without necessarily... Uh, being afraid to use the word mode. So God is one numerically singular divine essence subsisting in three persons, distinguished intrinsically, not merely conceptually, uh, exclusively by their personal properties of paternity, filiation, and spiration. And I apologize, the way I worded that is kind of clunky. But um, these persons are distinguished exclusively by their personal properties. So think of it this way. What is God? Shorter catechism. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So those are the divine attributes. That is the divine essence. As we have it revealed to us in the Bible, that's the description of it. So there's the divine essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share that same singular divine essence uh, and 
again, the, the way the Bible reveals it, there are these various attributes. And they share all of those attributes equally, co-eternally. Okay? So, what distinguishes the persons is not different attributes. Uh, different essential attributes. No. They're distinguished exclusively by their personal properties of paternity, filiation, and spiration. Those are big words, but let's break it down. Why is the Father called the Father? What makes Him distinct from the Son? What makes Him distinct from the Son is that the Father is not begotten. His person is not begotten. He begets. He does not proceed. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son does not beget and does not proceed but is begotten of the Father. The Spirit does not beget and is not begotten, but proceeds from the Father and the Son. So you have these eternal relations between the persons, okay? And that's the exclusive distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the only difference. They possess the entire divine being equally, co-equally, co-eternally. That's the only difference that... The Father begets, and the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So let's catch up with our definition here. And I'm going to leave out my uh, parenthesis there because it's clunky, as I said. God is one numerically singular divine essence, subsisting in three persons, distinguished exclusively by their personal properties of paternity, filiation, and spiration. That is... So what are these personal properties? That is the distinct manner or mode by which each person shares co-equally, co-eternally, and co-extensively in the fullness of the singular divine essence. So the personal properties we just described, these describe the distinct manner or mode, the way by which each person shares co-equally, co-eternally, co-extensively in the fullness of the singular divine essence. That is an, an extended explanatory definition of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity as it's been professed historically and embraced in the confessional Reformed tradition. Here's the confessional definition from the larger catechism. Uh, there is but one God only, the living and true God. There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Now, there's some recommended reading, some more recent books. You've got The Trinity, an introduction by Scott Swain. Uh, other than the dedication page, great book. Uh, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit by Matthew Barrett, who's a Southern Baptist uh, seminary professor. Excellent book in terms of, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's no match for the older books, but it's an excellent modern book explaining the issues in play and especially explaining social Trinitarianism. does a great job of that. You also have Post-Reformation Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 4, on the Triunity of God by the great Calvin Seminary scholar Richard Muller. 
also Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, so that we get our definitions correct. Uh, Shedd's Dogmatic Theology, Turretin, Van Maastricht, Brockel, Gerhardus Voss, Systematic Theology, uh, Reformed Dogmatics, or what have you, and uh, many others. But those are some things if you want to chase this down. We're, it may seem like we're being very complex here, but this is a very sort of simplified version. Those guys run with it to a greater extent. Now, social Trinitarianism. We've considered biblical Trinitarianism. Let's consider social Trinitarianism. This is a modern movement. We have to be aware of it. And uh, I thought we'd begin just uh, in something of a lighthearted way by considering a Wikipedia definition, just to sort of look at what, what, the, what people are saying out there. Wikipedia definition. This is what Wikipedia says of social Trinitarianism. A Christian interpretation of the Trinity as consisting of three persons in a loving relationship, which reflects a model for human relationships. The teaching emphasizes that God is an inherently social being and argues that the three persons are each distinct realities. Social Trinitarian thought argues that this one essence can be thought of as the loving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice the difference here. It's not three persons and one divine essence. It's three persons in one social relationship, which is a model for our social relationships. Uh, That social relationship is referred to as the divine essence, but it's more or less you can think of the one essence as the loving relationship. So you can see that the threeness of God is highly emphasized by social Trinitarians, the essential oneness of God as it's been confessed historically by the church from the days of the ecumenical creeds down through the Reformed confessions is virtually absent from it. And so it's all about these three distinct realities. The word real comes from... I say really. Really, the word real conveys the idea of essence. It conveys the idea of distinct essences. Some social Trinitarians would use that language, others would not, but you can see where it's headed. It really is seeming to have something of a tritheistic trajectory. Here's an explanatory definition based on my own studies, and again, you can read the chapter in Matthew Barrett's book, Simply Trinity. God as the archetype of human society and relationships is one essence consisting in a unified relationship, i.e. community, society, kingdom, between the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom possesses a distinct mind, will, and state of consciousness. That's the explanatory definition. In terms of biblical Trinitarianism, we have a confessional definition. We don't have one for social Trinitarianism because it's not confessional. No creed or confession Uh, or church body has ever affirmed anything like this within the true church of Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for that. But uh, looking at the explanatory definition, it says that God is the archetype of human society and relationships. Notice they're not saying that, for instance, we would say that God's eternal covenant of redemption is the archetype 
for His covenant of grace in history with His people through Christ. Or something like that, where we would say something about God's actions in eternity, His purposes in eternity being reflected in history. But they're saying the being of God is the archetype. The being of God is the fundamental blueprint for society and human relationships, which means that we can argue from human relationships in society back to the archetype, right? You have archetype and ectype, okay? And the ectype is human society and relationships. So what they're doing is they're saying, you see, human society and relationships reflects the image of God's essence so we can look at human society and relationships and argue back up into the Trinity. And then we can take the doctrine of the Trinity and use it to impose various social norms on society. And both the liberals and the conservatives love this. This is very popular more and more in both liberal and conservative political camps of those who profess Christ because they, they really what they're focused on is not communion with God in many instances, certainly not the liberals, um, but many of the conservatives are obsessed with social order and politics. And so their interest in the Trinity is driven by this social influence and paradigm that they desire. So God is the archetype of human society and relationships. And in that sense, it goes on to say He is one essence, and that essence consists in a unified relationship. So the unity of the Godhead is not in the divine essence, co-equally, co-eternally, co-extensively possessed by all three. But no, it's in this relationship, which Ralph Smith is going to describe as a covenant the intrinsic unity of the being of the one God is not the being of God. It's a covenantal relationship. So for the social Trinitarian, it's a relationship. And so a social Trinitarian is going to speak of the Godhead as a community, as a society, as a kingdom. God is a kingdom. He's the archetype. He is what a kingdom should be. So if we want to focus on the three persons of the Trinity as being fully equal, equally God, then we're going to bring that down and say, well, egalitarianism. Or if we're wanting, like so many misguided evangelicals, if we're wanting to defend the authority of a husband over his wife and complementarian relationships, then we're going to look at the Trinity and we're going to say, well, the Son functionally submits to the Father from all eternity. They're equal, but there's a subordination, just like husbands and wives. They're equally human, equal value, but husbands have authority over wives. And, and, and so people whose agenda is really imbalanced, focused too much on society, are going to tend to manipulate the Trinity. This is why Matthew Barrett wrote his book concerning the unmanipulated Trinity, or we could say the pre-manipulated Trinity, although people have been manipulating this doctrine uh, since, since the days of the apostles. But, but really in our day, even in Reformed churches and seminaries, much of the doctrine of the Trinity has either been forgotten or manipulated. So we've got to be aware of this. Part of the problem here is they say, in trying to make God the archetype of human relationships, is that each person of the Trinity possesses a distinct mind, a distinct will. Hence, 
the eternal functional subordination movement within evangelicalism is trying to say that the Son submits His will to the Father's will in the eternal being of God. In the ontological trinity, as we say. And, and, and of course, uh, historically, we would say God has one being, one nature, therefore one mind, one will, one state of consciousness. I and the Father are one. Jesus, as the God-man, can submit His human will, not my will, but thy will be done. But the divine will is one. Not so for the social Trinitarian. Notable adherents of this are uh, Roman Catholic liberal theologian Karl Rahner, Jürgen Moltmann, Miroslav Wolf, uh, again the EFS movement, which includes Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, and others in the evangelical camp, uh, Ralph Smith in the Federal Vision camp, and you can read a summary of, of social Trinitarian developments in chapter 3 of Barrett's Simply Trinity. Now, what are the characteristic tendencies of social Trinitarianism? First, this movement tends to ignore, reject, or downplay the historic distinction between the imminent or ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Now, those are big words. What do we mean? The imminent or ontological trinity refers to that which is true of God in himself, that is, in his ontological or essential being in His Godness, in Himself, without any reference to His purposes or actions in relation to creatures. That's the imminent or ontological trinity. It's referring to that which is true of God in Himself, in His being, without any reference to His purposes or actions in relation to creatures. So this would be true of God even if He never made the world and never purposed to do anything outside of Himself. This is the ontological imminent trinity. And then the economic trinity refers to that which is true of God in relation to His creatures by way of His eternal decree, so His purpose concerning creation, providence, redemption, the everlasting state, things like this. Uh, it's what's true of God in relation to His creatures by way of His eternal decree, as well as His works in time, the outworking of that decree in time and in history among His creatures. This important distinction enables us to distinguish between Christ's humble subjection to the Father, where He says, the Father is greater than I. That humble subjection to the Father is in the economic plan of redemption. We distinguish between that economic plan of redemption, God working and willing in history with respect to His creatures in the plan of redemption, versus His eternal ontological co-equality with the Father in power and glory. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word, in the beginning um, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Co-equality, co-eternity, co-extensive with the Father, but not so in the economic plan of redemption. So we have to distinguish who God is without respect to His creatures and what God does in respect to His plan in history. Very important distinction. It's not as though we don't reason from the e economic trinity, the works of God and the, and the purposes of God in creation, 
It's not as though we don't reason from that to learn things about who God is in himself, but we have to be very, very careful because not everything God does is grounded in who God is. For instance, you could argue God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that tells us that God is a creator. And uh, when he created Adam, Luke chapter 3 says, or chapter 2 says that he was the son of God. And that the angels whom God created are sons of God. Therefore, if it says that the Father eternally begat the Son, then we would say, well, if if God is creating sons in the economic trinity, therefore, the Father created the Son in the ontological trinity. You see, and we become heretics. We become Arians. Because we're making unwarranted and reckless inferences from what God has done and purpose with respect to creation and trying to argue from that without proper constraints and in an irresponsible and reckless way to argue back into the ontological trinity. You've got to be aware of that. This movement, social Trinitarianism, tends to ignore, reject, or downplay that distinction to open the way for their reckless inferences. Second, this movement tends to use the concept of imago Dei or the image of God God created man in his own image. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness, man's nature reflects God in some way. They use that concept to justify arbitrary inferences from created relationships to God's triune being. We're going to see that. Third, this movement tends to characterize the Orthodox Christian doctrine of monotheism as cold and impersonal. So, can't remember if it was Rahner or Moltmann, that they didn't like the term monotheism. They didn't even like using that term. Many social Trinitarians do not like that term, or they take that term as it's been historically confessed by Christians, and they paint this teaching as cold and impersonal. If you say that the unity of the, of, of the Godhead, the unity of the three persons of the Godhead is ontological. It is God has one being, and it's the one nature of God, one mind, one will, one state of consciousness. They say that's cold, that's impersonal. Even if you say there are three persons. No, no, it's cold and impersonal. If if each person doesn't have a distinct mind, will, and state of consciousness, it's cold and impersonal. And, uh, it, and it makes, makes you cold and impersonal, you know, mean-spirited and so on. Um, this is the mentality of social Trinitarianism. Uh, fourthly, it, this movement tends to describe God in terms highly suggestive of tritheism, such as kingdom, society, or community. Now, we recognize that within God there is the one and the many. One God, three persons. We understand that within God there's a plurality of persons and that when God created man in his own image that there's something of that plurality reflected. He makes man and woman and there are relationships that exist in the world because God is love and there are these eternal relations between the persons of the Trinity. God is not impersonal. So we're not denying that there's something of the image of God, something in the plurality of the persons that's reflected in the relationships that God has established in the world, 
in a sort of secondary way, in a sort of reflective way, in an analogical way. Okay? But social Trinitarianism takes this in the extreme and speaks of God as the ultimate kingdom. God is a society. God is a community. Very tritheistic in its vocabulary. Fifthly, social Trinitarianism tends to redefine the term person as a distinct center of consciousness with its own mind, will, and in some cases, attributes. Attributes. And so we're going to see with Ralph Smith in particular that he's not even comfortable saying that all three persons co-equally, co-eternally, co-extensively share in the self-same divine being as described in Shorter Catechism 4 in terms of the attributes. He's going to say, well, the Father's righteousness is a fatherly righteousness, and the Son's righteousness is different, and, and the Holy Spirit's goodness and love, and these different attributes, they, they're different. They're qualified by the way in which each person exercises them. And so, really, what you create is a quadrinity. Think about it. Let's just take the attribute of righteousness. And again, I'm not denying here that, in principle, God is not a collection of parts or attributes, okay? Um, God is one. We believe in the simplicity of God. But the way the Bible reveals God's character for our conceptual purposes is with attributes. So let's think of righteousness. How many righteous righteousnesses are there if you're a biblical Trinitarian in the Godhead? There's one. Because there's one God, therefore one essential attribute of righteousness. But if you're a social Trinitarian, like Ralph Smith, as we're going to see, and you think that each of the persons of the Trinity possesses a distinct righteousness, then what you're really saying is you've got the divine righteousness, the righteousness of the divine being that's not qualified by personhood. Then you've got the Father's righteousness, the Son's righteousness, and the Spirit's righteousness. You've got four righteousnesses, and you've really got four persons, or rather four natures, four beings, four sets of the attribute of righteousness. You've got a quadrinity. Uh, Now, our forefathers in the historic Christian faith uh, saw that a mile away, and that's why we need to be very careful to do our due diligence and take stock of the historical language that's used, the terminology, and not just throw it out like some of these social Trinitarians where they're, they're not content with the historic terms. But again, most of these people are liberals anyway. They're not content with any of the historical categories of the Christian faith. They reject the biblical doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration. They reject uh, the substitutionary atonement. They reject all these things. But what's shocking is that you have evangelicals jumping on this bandwagon trying to manipulate the Trinity into a social blueprint for society or for the church. Uh, And that really hits my sixth point, that social Trinitarianism tends to make theology subservient to sociology, whether liberal or conservative. And really, whichever branch you're in, it tends toward tritheism. So let's be very careful here. It's not surprising that social Trinitarianism is arising within the federal vision because the federal vision has arisen within the construct of the Christian Reconstruction Movement, 
which though there are some bright spots in it, many of the people in that movement, as I know firsthand, got so focused on culture that they rejected and abandoned historic, systematic, confessional theology. You've got guys like Joe Moorcraft who are standing in the gap, but many of these guys did not. And so Federal Vision is, is the result of that, uh, that strain within Christian Reconstruction. They're, they're focused on sociology, and so their interest in the Trinity is driven by their interest in following Rush Dooney's theory of the one and the many and how the Trinity forms the basis and blueprint of the social order. And, and he has a book, The Foundations of Social Order. And just that strain of emphasis, whether he makes some good points or not, that strain of emphasis tends to make theology subservient to sociology. And what you have is the liberal version and the conservative version. And uh, it all tends, sadly toward tritheism. So we've looked at biblical Trinitarianism. We've looked at social Trinitarianism. I'm going to read some quotes here from the, uh, the third section on that first page, and then we'll be done. And we'll, we'll get into Ralph Smith next time. Social Trinitarianism within the federal vision. Uh, and really all I'm seeking to establish here is that the federal vision owns and claims Ralph Smith as its own and uses the kind of language that he uses and appeals to his writings as a basis for certain teachings within the federal vision. What you find is the federal vision is looking for reasons to justify their view of the church, their view of the covenant. And if you read through guys like Miroslav Volf. Uh, Moltmann, these guys are saying the Trinity is the basis for our view of the church. And that's exactly what federal visionists are doing. They're trying to uh, use this weird quasi-heretical view of the Trinity, this social Trinitarianism, to set the tone to justify their view of the social order within the church. And it's, it's very sad. But let's look at some of these quotes and then we'll be done. Rich Lusk, 2003. This is in the Auburn Avenue Theology volume. Doug Wilson says all the essays by the Federal Visionists are within the middle of the mainstream of Reformed Orthodoxy in that volume. So he's, Doug Wilson is giving his stamp of approval on this statement by Rich Lusk in 2003. Quote, In fact, we understand that the triune God himself is the archetype of the covenant. We see that Adam must have existed in loving fellowship with his creator from the beginning. The Trinity, not the ancient Near Eastern suzerain treaties, must define our view of the covenant. So he's taking a shot at Meredith Klein there um, for what it's worth. He goes on, several theologians have recently argued that Father, Son, and Spirit are related covenantally, not just in the economy of creation and redemption, but ontologically and eternally as well. Let me stop there. He's saying that the three persons of the Trinity are related covenantally in an ontological and eternal way. That's how the grammar reads there. So God in his being is covenantal. And he footnotes Ralph Smith, The Eternal Covenant, published by none other than Canon Press. Outfitters of the Apostate, I mean, uh, Reformation. Um, Canon Press, Doug Wilson, Moscow, Idaho. He, he published this, this stuff 
And Rich Lusk cites it. He goes on, but if this original covenant, that is God's covenantal being, was a non-meritorious relation of love and favor, the first manifestation of that covenant in the creation must have been as well. The covenant within the Trinity is the model for extra-Trinitarian covenants. The creation covenant is just the loving outreach and overflow of the inter-Trinitarian covenant, end quote. So we don't have to get into the details, but he's basically saying because God's being is covenantal, whatever that means, it's kind of frightening because a covenant involves an agreement of parties, okay? Um, very tritheistic in its trajectory. But he says, because of this fact, God's covenantal being, we reject the covenant of works. So again, he's just manipulating the Trinity to prove a point in a debate, which is very, very characteristic of social Trinitarianism, making theology subservient to these other agendas. 2007 Federal Vision Joint Statement. This is signed by Ralph Smith. This is signed by Doug Wilson, who says, quote, I would still affirm everything I signed off on in the Federal Vision Statement, end quote. That's from his blog, January 17, 2017. Listen to the Federal Vision Statement. We affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. All faithful theology and life is conducted in union with an imitation of the way God eternally is, end quote. Now, as I mentioned, Canon Press published Smith's books. It also publishes a study that he did called Shakespeare the Christian. Um, And uh, you could just as easily have titled that Ralph Smith the Trinitarian because it would be equally true. Um, But the point is, uh, Canon Press is publishing this. Doug Wilson is saying, I affirm this statement. All the federal visionists sign this joint statement and listen to the joint statement. We're, we're leaving it off with this, but listen to the heretical implications. Implications. I'm not saying if you sign it, you're a heretic. I'm saying the heretical implications. The triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. Is the relationship between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage a covenantal relation? Yes. Does the husband have authority over his wife? Yes. All faithful theology in life is conducted uh, in union with an imitation of the way God eternally is. Are children a covenantal inheritance of parents? Are they subservient to parents and have a duty to obey and honor their parents? I mean, are we going to read all of these instances of covenantal hierarchy and authority back into the ontological trinity? Uh, the Federal Vision Joint Statement, though the people who signed it are probably incapable of understanding these implications, many of them, the fact is if you sign this knowing what it means and what it implies, you're affirming heresy. People talk about, is Federal Vision heresy? I'd say it's doctrine of the Trinity perhaps is the closest thing. If you're going to call anything heresy across the board, it's that. We've seen various heretical threads running through this author, but not that author, and so on. But with respect to the Trinity, if we say that, you know, husbands, or rather wives, submit to your husbands as the son submits to the father, okay, uh, we're getting into big trouble here. Big trouble. The implications are heretical, even if the people 
that are signing it don't realize that, okay, but now they know, okay? And many people have pointed this out, so they need to renounce this Federal Vision Joint Statement immediately because it sets the tone for social Trinitarianism and ultimately it sets the tone for a denial of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. That's all I have for you today. Does anybody have any questions? All right. Next time, we will look at the teachings of Ralph A. Smith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand who you are with humility, knowing our limitation, knowing that we have no capacity to fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. Help us to humbly receive it from your word. Help us to humbly receive it as it's been articulated biblically from our forefathers. We thank you for preserving this doctrine in its purity and handing it to us by way of the creeds and councils and confessions of the church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in our covenantal relations uh, to reflect your knowledge, the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness into which you've created us in your image. We pray that we would reflect the perfect example of our God-man mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you'd give us discernment in seeking to be, as it were, partakers of the divine nature, those who show forth your communicable attributes of goodness and mercy and justice and holiness and all of these things to your honor and glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.